This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is brought to you by Liquid Amber Tattoo and Art Collective. Liquid Amber provides custom and cosmetic tattoos alongside a curated art gallery dedicated to celebrating local artists. And their monthly art socials are becoming a can't-miss event in the Vancouver cultural scene. Discover more at liquidambertattoo.com. And stay tuned to learn more about Liquid Amber's call for submissions for a film industry art showcase coming in 2020. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. I'm your host, Sabrina Furminger. My mission is to pull back the curtain on Vancouver's film and television industry and expose its beating heart, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom style, by getting deep and down and a little dirty with the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work. Capital T, capital W. Today, we welcome Omari Akil Newton to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Omari is a creative force who's made a mark in multiple cities across Canada. In Montreal, where at 19 years old, he won accolades for his performance in Athol Fugard's, am I saying that right? You are. Athol Fugard's. Athol Fugard, I say it. You say what? Athol Fugard, I think. Athol Fugard's My Children, My Africa with Black Theatre Workshop, Canada's oldest black theatre company. In Ottawa, where his play Sal Capone ran in the second half of the National Arts Centre's 2017-2018 season. And in Vancouver, where he straddled the screen and theatre worlds as an in-demand actor on shows like Continuum, which is one of my favourites, a producer like on The Shipment, and a playwright and a teacher, Omari won a 2018 Jesse Award for his performance in The Shipment, which recently, as in last night, uh, <laughs> wrapped up a successful remount at the Firehall Arts Center. Social justice issues are important to Omari and are central to his work in the arts. And as a result, he's been a part of the YVR Screen Scene family since our inception. Omari writes about social justice issues and how they intersect with the entertainment industry for YVR Screen Scene. His columns are some of our most widely read and debated articles. He's written about the attempted job shaming of Jeff Jeffrey Owens, the Cosby Show actor who because he needed to survive and exist, worked in a grocery store while also uh, pursuing his art. Um, He's written about white privilege and entertainment, about onset bro culture in the wake of Me Too, about why Black Panther is so important to him, about why your black friends canceled Liam Neeson, and the complete list of people who can shut the fuck up about Megan Rapinoe. (laughs) I don't know what we're going to talk about today. I just know that whenever Omari and I get together, we just talk and we talk and we talk. (laughs) So today, let's talk. Mari Newton, welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you know, Sabrina, one of my favorite humans. Not, I want to thank you for giving me a platform as a writer, and I, I just appreciate you. I appreciate you, too. Mm. I think it's ridiculous that it's taken us this long to yeah. get you into the studio, though. Though I've been attempting to do so since the very early days, but you were often out of town. That, that's on me. I'll yeah. take responsibility. You did ask me in the first season, and I, and I was pretty busy, you know, doing theater and a bunch of stuff around Canada. So, How do you just, I mean, we t- often talk about labels mm-hmm. on the show. Uh, and I know that the kind of work that you've done has has transformed, you know, especially in recent years. How do you describe yourself? Hmm. 
It's interesting. I was on CBC Radio uh, this week. Oh, that's a flex. Yeah. I was on CBC Radio, and I'm here for your podcast. <laughs> that definitely was not <laughs> intended as a flex. It really wasn't glamorous, but uh, they introduced me as an actor, and I I recognized that I was like, you know, I don't. I didn't feel comfortable being presented as that way, and I asked them to add a uh, writer to my bio, because I think I would define myself as a creative, as an artist, um, because I feel like acting is just a small part of, of what I try to do with my life. Yeah, I've gotten stuck, re- not stuck, yes, I'll say stuck, because I that mm-hmm. I'm envisioning myself because I'm stuck. I am stuck at that point. Mm-hmm. That, like, on the term storyteller, mm. for a lot of the people who come in here, especially mm-hmm. the, I mean, mostly the multi hyphenates, but even act, because even the, sure. the people who self identify as only actors, yeah. you know, because storytelling, that is what it's about, you know, it's yeah. it's telling a certain kind of truth or taking mm-hmm. somebody on a narrative journey, you know, through mm-hmm. storytelling. Yeah, and I, and I also feel like, you know, as an actor, the work is incredible, and I obviously I'm fascinated by the craft of acting, but there's only so much influence you can have on the content of the story you're telling as an actor. Mm. And I feel like as I get older, you know, I'm turning 40 this year. Me too. Oh, right on. <laughs> I'm November 18th. I'm October 19th. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Wow, it's soon. Yeah. yeah. Hashtag 40 as fuck. Yeah. Um, that's my, <laughs> that's what I'm putting out into the world. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Didn't you think we would feel more like grown-ups by this point? Yeah, I hoped, but uh, this is, this is it. Yeah. This is 40. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, and also yay. But I'm sorry, I no, no, it's you. all it's all good. So as you approach forty, yeah, I just think about like working on projects that I want to feel like I have more of a stake in them than just like performing. Yeah. And, I, and I, I always joke that the things I have to say are more interesting than the way I say things. Mm. Well, you have said a lot of things on the Yvier Screen Scene uh, yeah. website, mm-hmm. um, and uh, not always making a lot of friends uh, no. in so doing, um, and and yet inspiring a lot of discussion. Uh, now I, I don't I don't I want to show a peek behind the curtain to my to my listeners and people mm-hmm. who've read the site, but uh, I contact I asked you to write for YVR Screen Scene, and you seemed shocked that I was asking you because you yeah. didn't just didn't consider yourself to be that kind of writer. But I've been reading your Facebook posts, which mm-hmm. are literally columns, right. opinion pieces yeah. that have caused a lot of discussion. So I just, I mean, I just wanted that for, for yeah. myself and my publication. But, you know, so, so, so uh, but can you talk to me about like, what impact has writing for me mm-hmm. <laughs> had well, on you and, and your career and your yeah. life and moving through this industry? Well, it's interesting. I feel like it, it sort of le- legitimized me as a writer in, in a sense. Because, oh, yeah. you know, anyone who knows me, I, I've been pretty vocal on social media. I express my views. and But I never I never did it with the intention of becoming a formal writer. Yeah. I just have strong opinions and sometimes I'm and, and drawn to talk about them. But having them published in a column, there's like a an official record that people can find. And yeah. I've been approached by some other publications to write for them because they read stuff that I wrote in your column so it's it's been cool it's like a whole different um avenue that I'd never I never considered you know before I'd done creative writing as like a, a playwright or short stories but this kind of non-fiction you know opinion column thing really started with you reaching out to me because of Facebook so yeah now you have written some stuff that as I say 
not everybody agrees with sure. uh, all the time. And um, I always find it interesting to see who's liking it, mm-hmm. your articles, you sharing it and stuff. But I mean, I'm, th- I'm thinking specifically about the article that you wrote about um, uh, white privilege and what we can learn about it from the Lori Laughlin mm-hmm. um, Debacle, sure, and uh, yeah. you know, and then also the um, the why your black friends canceled Liam Neeson, and yeah. that got people like people I that we so. work with, that you work with, sure. really, really angry. I got a lot know? of people angry. Yeah, but the thing is, can we swear on this podcast? Fuck yeah! <laughs> the thing is, and I mean this not as a flex, and I mean it with sincerity and humility. You're allowed to flex here. I, I don't give a shit. Yeah, I'm kind of like you know, we have such a finite time on this earth, and I try to live with a degree of, of honesty with myself and, and truth. And, and I always tell people, you know, I'm not speaking for a community. I'm not speaking from for a political party. Like, I express my own views in a way that I think is honest. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of people, for whatever reason, are unwilling to have truly honest discourse. because And, and I get it. Look, Lori Loughlin made a lot of people in this city a lot of money. That is true. Hallmark is a major employer in this city, and I, I, I understand. And and even sometimes I'm hesitant to speak out, but I just go like, you know, hopefully when I pass away, hopefully many, many years from now. So many years. I, I don't think people are going to be thinking about the work I did in Hallmark. And if, if that is what comes up in my eulogy, I've failed. Hmm. So I'm kind of like, all right, it might piss some people off. It might cost me some work, but... Who cares? That is what it means to be forty as fuck. You got to carry that into your sure. into your next uh, decade. Mm-hmm. Um, you sit on diversity panels. Uh, we've Many. sat on some of those together. <laughs> Many. You speak to the the media mm-hmm. whenever there's racism somewhere <laughs> in the culture, which seems to be all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been kind of an exhausting. Uh, year. It's been an exhausting, yeah. especially the last month mm-hmm. in Canada, sure. you know, with everything that's been going on. Like, how you doing? You know, I, <laughs> I, I, I think I'm, I'm thinking a lot about some of the infuriating discussions that I've had in my own life with Canadians, white Canadians mm-hmm. who be like, oh, Canada's not racist or Justin Trudeau's not racist or that's not racist. And I know that even just those conversations, the toll that they have on me, like, so speaking out to, to the media when you're invited to do so in those circumstances, sitting mm-hmm. on those diversity panels, like, why do you do it, and what kind of toll does it take on you, both as a human and as an artist? And I know that those are one yeah. of the same, but you sure, know, like. Sure. Um, well, I do it because I feel like I've been blessed in my professional life to have been given some good opportunities that have given me a platform and made me some money. I feel like the uh, responsibility you have if you've been given a mainstream platform and made money in the mainstream is to give voice to your peers who may not have been given those same opportunities. Yeah, I kind of feel like that's the bargain you have to make because I've, you know, we before we started recording, we talked about it, but I've done some roles in my career that aren't in any way aligned with my personal politics or worldview. Yeah. And and as a result, there are some people who initially had the wrong impression of me because of some of the roles I'd played before. So I was like, okay, I've got these this demographic of people, mostly like young men, who follow me because they think I'm this one thing. So my trade-off was like, if you're gonna follow me because of this show that is pretty offensive, that's cool, but you're gonna be reading articles from Jezebel and The Atlantic, you hmm. know? And I, I just made sure to amplify voices of feminist writers that I respect so that these guys realize that there's more to life than some of the shows I've been on. Yeah, okay, so we're talking specifically about the character of Larry that you played on Blue Mountain State, which was very much like a a show that was about jocks and and, uh, university Mm -hmm. culture. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you regret doing that show? I don't regret it at all. 
I, in fact, it's it's this weird thing. I'm eternally grateful for being cast on that show. That was my big break. Yeah, I'd never made money like that before. I, I had never been on a show. I mean, to this day, some yesterday at the shipment, two young women came up to me after a matinee, and they were like, they were excited to meet Larry from Blue Mountain State. Yeah. Because of Netflix, the show is still by far the thing that I get recognized for most. So I don't regret it at all. And I'll also say, the the showrunners of that show and the producers and directors are friends of mine to this day. Yeah, they're they're some of the most like loyal, respectful, cool dudes I know. And I and I know a, a lot of women who who worked on the show who say that they were treated well. I mean, to this day, actually, uh, Frankie Shaw, who's a dear friend of mine, who now is like the, she was the star and the showrunner and and, uh, writer and director of the show Smilf that was nominated for a number of Emmys. we met on that show, yeah, and we became. And she, she, you know, she has a, I believe, a, a degree in in feminist studies, and her work very much champions feminist causes. And I wouldn't have known her if it wasn't for that show. Yeah. Now, that being said, and I did have a follow up, so I, let's see if you're going to answer that. What I, I was going to ask. Absolutely. Yeah. That being said, I don't know if a show like that could be made today. Yeah. I don't know if it, if it would be made today, and am I? Am I regretful about some of the messages that were put out by the show and some of the things that were done on the show? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I was able to leverage that platform into touring to high schools and universities across Canada and championing the cause, like social justice causes and feminist causes. And the kids listen to me because they see Larry from Blue Mountain State. Yeah. Would you do a show like that again? Like, would you do a mm-hmm. role like that? Hmm. Again, you know, I, I mean, without like uh, right. acknowledging the the import that it's had in your career and your ability to speak out, you know, mm-hmm. you, let's say you you were asked to do a show that was even like more like really blatantly offensive and mm-hmm. possibly damaging, mm-hmm. you know, in in how it presents uh, cer- certain marginalized communities. Yeah, would you do that? It it would have to be on a, a, a case by case basis. Yeah. Like my my initial gut instinct tells me most likely no but then you have to always weigh whether the ends justify the means yeah you know if i let's say i did a show that was super offensive in that way but it paid such an amount of money that it would mean you know financial independence for myself and my families for generations to come and i could use that money and that platform to start a theater company or start a, a nonprofit organization that helped young people in the you know what i mean yeah like i'm always of, of the mindset of like uh being practical you know like it's I understand in this business how it's hard to make a living and sometimes money is scarce and to me I try to judge people by what they do with the opportunities they're given more than the opportunities they take because I don't know the nuances of their situation yeah do you think that that you've been judged harshly amazingly no okay good amazingly no like I, I think you haven't had anybody call you a, a hypocrite or something like, "How dare you speak oh. out on this?" Because you were Larry on fucking Blue Mountain State, sure. you know. Well, some, in, I mean, in in private, some of my closest friends have have come at me for what they think has been apologizing for the show or defending the show for yeah. sure. But most people also recognize amazingly that the culture in two thousand nine was a lot different than the culture now. So they they Is recognize it that two thousand and nine really. Yeah, the the we uh, we filmed the pilot in two thousand nine. That was, it feels like. Like a century. Ago. I, I know. I mean, it was, it was crazy, right? It was a decade yeah. ago. But and then and then the other thing too is like, you know, y- yes, you could say that it's somewhat hypocritical to champion social justice and feminist causes after being on that show. But the alternative is not 
<laughs> using that platform to do that and just cashing checks. Yeah. And, and, I, and I mean, look, without naming names, I know a lot of actors who it seems like their raison d'etre and their very existence revolves around booking more work and promoting shows that they're on. Yeah. Which I get it. That's part of our, our business. But I'm not interested in people tuning into my social media and seeing set life photos and pictures of me with celebrities or like yeah. it's just not it contributes in my opinion in terms of the the grand scheme of things. It doesn't contribute a legacy that I am personally interested in. Yeah. If if someone if someone's ultimate goal is to be a famous actor, by all means, do you that's the path towards doing it. Yeah. I'm not interested. Yeah, I mean and and Sending out those photos and and sh- I mean you wrote about this in one of your pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was the Jeffrey Owens one mm-hmm. about you know the idea sending out those photos and and showing yourself in a trailer and mm-hmm. hashtag set life. Maybe like that it can have such a negative impact on your mental health and the sure. mental health of others because maybe you only worked like twelve days sure. on set and you banked all of those photos and yet you're putting those photos out there and you're making everybody else think that you're so much busier and why aren't they as busy sure. and well. And the reality is this, anyone who understands our business, if you're not on the poster, you're a cog in the wheel. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's dope to be working. Being a working actor, I'm very blessed to say I'm a working actor. And hashtag whatever. blessed. Ha- hashtag blessed, yeah. <laughs> but if, if you're not on the poster, if you're not the reason why they're making that project, you're a cog in the wheel and you're, and you're replaceable. So I think approaching it from a lens of gratitude and humility yeah. rather than, you know, than bragging or I don't I don't even know what else to call it is is just honest. Yeah. <laughs> they don't need you on yeah. the show unless you're the number one or or two on the call sheet. You know. You bring such remarkable honesty to uh to social media and to the Webber Screen Scene site, which is something I appreciate. I, I wanna I wanna go back in time. Mm-hmm. What is your uh time travel vessel of choice? Oh, let's okay, let's take a my this will be a funny one. My dad had an '87 Toyota Camry with uh, corduroy in- interiors. Let's okay. let's make that our vessel. <laughs> so instead of the DeLorean, we're gonna stick the flux capacitor yeah. in um, a very swanky car. Okay, and I want to. So I, we might even drive by me. We're gonna go back to the West Island. All right. Uh, we're gonna go back because okay. So this is another kind of peek behind the curtain. But I am convinced that if I had stayed in the West Island, because I'm from Quebec, I mm-hmm. was there until I was 10. If I'd stayed, mm-hmm. we would have been friends, or at least have known each I other. So. Yeah. We lived in neighboring towns. Yeah. I went to a school in Beaconsfield, and right. I think we have some, you went to high school with a bunch of people that I went to elementary school with, yeah, right? Yeah. So, okay, so we're gonna go back to the West Island. Okay. Uh, we're, I, want, I wanna know you when you're eight years old, because it's the oh, age wow. that, my daughter, that my daughter Mari is eight years old, now, okay. and um, mm-hmm. so we're gonna pull up to your house, mm-hmm. And uh, who, who are we gonna see? And what so, kind of kid are we gonna see? I was a really happy kid who loved sports, but here's a funny thing that as, as it relates to my current profession, uh, I had, when I was born, I had polyps on my vocal cords. Oh. So you know those kids who, who have that voice like this? Yeah. Like I used to have a voice like this when I was a kid, and I would lose my voice constantly because I had polyps on my vocal cords, and then I think I had surgery in the third grade, and I remember a, um, the nurse at the school was like, oh, your voice sounds great. Like, I can hear the difference. But she's like, you know, you'll never be able to be like a singer or an actor, but you should be able to speak, <laughs> you know, with more consistency and more normalcy. So, yeah, eight-year-old me was a happy kid with a raspy voice. <laughs> wow. 
So so it was pre, this was before the surgery. This was before the surgery, I think. Okay. Yeah. And, and, I, uh, and I should also add, you know, I had a twin, I have a twin sister, I have an older sister, uh, you know, both my parents, uh, very loving family. My parents immigrated to Montreal from Trinidad and Tobago, and I watched them through education. Like, they're kind of, you know, were the model immigrant story. Yeah. And, and that my mom came to Canada. She didn't even have uh, a high school de- degree and ended up getting a master's degree and working as a social worker for the government. My father uh, is an accountant and he worked in the in the corporate sector as an accountant. And we were we were born in Cote d'Ange. And I, I still remember we were on Darlington Place and we had a two-bedroom place where the five of us lived. Yeah. Uh, so I shared a room with my sisters when I was really, really young. Then we moved from Cote d'Ange to Pierrefonds to like a bigger house. And like then I like got to share a room with just my twin sister. So that yeah. was like, whoa. Then when I was starting high school, we moved to this massive house in Kirkland. So like I watched my parents live the immigrant dream. Yeah. And I experienced living through different socioeconomic classes, right? Which I, th- I think gave me a great appreciation for like just how different people live. Yeah, I, I love too that idea you talk about the model immigrant. Mm-hmm. I mo- I find that most immigrants, mm-hmm. and it's gonna be sweeping generalization, mm-hmm. internalize that need that they have to be the best immigrant they can be and they do it for a lot for gratitude as yeah. well that they have the opportunity to be to be here and it's mm-hmm. such a it's such a it's out of step with you know what the the white supremacist anti-immigration people say right that oh it's, they're gonna come here and like bleed the system it's like ah oh, they contribute so much okay it's absurd I mean people don't recognize like I moved from Montreal to Vancouver and that was a grind I didn't yeah. know anybody out here you know you got to make community you got to make connections I can't even fathom moving from a tiny island where the population of your island is less than the population of the city of Montreal where you moved to yeah. and 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 Trinidad is an English-speaking country. I can't fathom moving from a country where English isn't the language and how much grit and determination it must take to come to Canada and make a life for yourself and your family. So this narrative that like immigrants are coming over here to like bleed the system is absurd. Yeah, absolutely. So what did eight-year-old Omari want to be when he grew up? I loved sports. And I think initially I wanted to like make the NBA, like I wanted to play basketball. but uh, soon realized that that was never going to happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes uh, what we want and what we actually have to offer, mm-hmm. they you know they don't go hand in sure. hand. Well, I mean, I mean, so like, but at what point did you articulate? I'm assuming at some point, maybe not when you're eight. We can get back in the car and drive to this point in time. Sure. But when did you articulate? I am going to be an actor, mm. writer, storyteller. Yeah. Well, because of my my voice. I loved acting, like I, I loved being on stage, but because of my voice, I didn't think it was a, a realistic possibility for me because I would lose, like I couldn't speak very loudly and I would lose my voice constantly. Uh, and I think it was really like after I had the surgery that I, it was just really exciting because I had all these like ideas and then I got a chance to like express myself freely. And, and I remember, I think it was- You found your voice. I found my voice, yeah. And I think somewhere, either in grade three or four, I, I was on like the elementary school improv team. And I was made like captain of the improv team, even though I was in the fourth grade and there was people as old as grade six. Wow. So that was the first time that I was like, oh, like maybe, maybe there's something here. If, yeah. they're, if they're, you know? So that's when I, you know, I really started to, to love acting. Yeah. Um, and you know, I I used to do like church plays when I was a kid. Like I was I was cast as a as Joseph in in the church play. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was pretty impressed with myself because yeah. I was 
you know, young black kid in, in a mostly white church in, in TMR, town of Mount Royal. So the, it started then, but yeah, it was really like elementary school and high school. Yeah, were there a lot of other black kids in your school? Oh no. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh no. no. Very much not. Like, it was me and my sisters, and the running joke was, people who didn't know me well at first would always be like, hey, like, you should like date Akilah my twin sister, because they were the two black kids. Like, oh, God. You guys are similar. And I'd be like, that's my twin. That's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> so, and did you feel like an other? Uh, yes, I was Because Quebec's weird, right? Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, I'll just, I'm just going to say, like, I sure. felt like an other mm-hmm. a lot, though. Well, one, because I had a brown dad. And sure. also because, I mean, I was, we were an Anglophone family in yep. an increasingly French area. And, like, mm-hmm. so in in our neighborhood the kind of the the otherness was a, was the language issue which i don't yep. think a lot of the rest of canada really realizes oh, that i mean granted there's so much racism in Quebec. yeah holy crap but the so language racist. thing is very real in, oh it's real yeah. yeah yeah so like did that contribute at all like tell me tell yeah. me yeah well s'il vous plaît <laughs> my my parents i feel like they their politics were very much formed by uh, the American Civil Rights Movement. Mm. And it, I joke now, when I go back to my parents' house in, in Kirkland, their library is like this amazing treasure trove of black revolutionaries. Yeah. Like they got like, you know, Bella Hooks books in there. I remember I read Soul on Ice by Eldridge Cleaver, the autobiography of Malcolm X, just like chilling in my parents' library, right? So because they came up in that time, they were very deliberate about telling us, you know, you have to work 10 times harder. Uh, you have to you're not rep- just representing yourself in school you're representing like all black people because you you might be the only one that people meet so i did feel like an other but it wasn't so much in the sense that i felt discriminated against in fact i, I was quite popular in school i just recognized that i had responsibilities beyond just my own personal life frankly that sounds exhausting I mean, that's like a lot yeah. of pressure to, to put on yourself and to sure. put on like, like t- tell me about the mental toll, the emotional toll of that. Like, well, I mean, do you feel that even now in the work that you're doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm cognizant of it now. Yeah. And I, I mean, when I was a kid, because it was all I knew, I didn't really find it exhausting. But there was stuff like, you know, I didn't I didn't drink basically at all till college. Yeah. I, this first time I like smoked a joint was like in my late 20s just because I always in the back of my mind had this idea of like you're rep- you're representing the entire black community don't play into these stereotypes yeah so stuff like that where there would be decisions <laughs> I would make subconsciously that were guided by feeling a need to like represent my my race and my culture in a positive light yeah, yeah. so where did acting come into that then so I got cut from no i quit football to focus on basketball Mm -hmm. in grade uh 11 and then got cut from the city basketball team because i was i was five foot seven when i was in grade six so i I learned how to play basketball like as a a big and then i'm five foot nine now that's all i got so i I had you know i thought i was gonna somebody was like getting taller than you yeah 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 Yeah. so i learned how to play in the post (laughs) and i was like i'm five foot nine right so i I got cut from the basketball team and i had this great drama teacher who's since passed away Uh, her name was linda mckenty and you know she had heard that I wasn't playing sports and she I was always in her drama class and, and we got along really, really well. And she basically demanded me, you know, I, I come and audition for the school play. She's like, I better see you at the auditions. And then she cast me as the lead in uh, Much Ado About Nothing. Wow. Yeah, she cast me as Benedict. I love how often 
teachers, specifically high school drama teachers, come up yeah. in this podcast in yeah. the, in this room because it's it it speaks so much to the the power that mm-hmm. that teachers have, you mm-hmm. know, and, and in recognizing something, you know, that maybe we don't even see about our about ourselves. You know what? So when you entered the world of of actually no, let's. Not, I want to put a pin in that sure. for a second yeah, because yeah. you know, growing up, then what were the on-screen images? You know, oh. the, the characters uh, from television, from film, mm-hmm. from cartoons mm-hmm. that that had an impact on you, and that might have like, you know, sparked something. You know, that that yeah. continues to bloom today. I'm doing so much hand talking, and we're not a video podcast. That's right. Bloom. <laughs> I'm a hand talker too. West Indians is what we yeah. do. Yeah, um, well, South Asian same. Right. Some of my earliest, mem- like positive memories, like LeVar Burton, like so many yeah. black men my age is a hero. Yeah. You know, I just, Star Trek The Next Generation was life. And it was the first time I remember seeing like this kind of nerdy, intellectual black man with a high ranking position on TV. And I was yeah. just like, that's the guy. Yeah. Because oftentimes the depictions of black men on television were either these like tough warrior swaggering types or these suave, cool, sexy dudes. And yeah. As you know, me being kind of a you know, I liked sports and stuff, but I was sort of a nerdy black guy who read comic books and loved Dungeons and Dragons. So I never, I could never really connect. And then I saw Lavar Burton, and I was like, "Yep, that's that's the guy." So that's definitely an early one. And of course, you know, Sidney Poitier, Denzel Washington. Just my parents were really good about showing me uh, some of those classic movies, and just the the grace and dignity that those men carry themselves with really influenced me. Yeah. So uh, I I love when you're talking about Jordy. We're talking about Jordy LaForge. Yeah. 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 Uh, that you actually ended up playing a, n- a nerdy guy sure. on a sci-fi show, yeah. uh, which is Lucas on on Continuum. On Continuum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you have a bit of sci-fi in your. I mean, yeah. that's part of what being in in mm-hmm. Vancouver as well. Like, wh- what is the what are the joys oh, of man. of working in the in the sci-fi realm? It was amazing. Shout out to to Simon Barry. Simon who, who cast me on the show, but that that was a dream role. Like for a young black kid who grew up watching Star Trek: Next Generation, and it's funny. I remember I was talking to one of my friends on set of Blue Mountain State, to my buddy uh, James Cade, a wonderful actor from Toronto. And I, while I loved working on Blue Mountain State, I recognized that the character and what I was asked to do on the show didn't really give much insight into who I was. Yeah. And I remember one day, you know, we're sitting in our trailer, and I was just like, you know what, I'd love to do like a sci-fi show. I remember telling, like I said, I said, put it out to the universe. I'd love to do like a sci-fi show where I played like a tech guy. And like the next year, I was booked on Continuum and had this amazing four-year run where still friends with the cast to this day. Like, oh yeah, you know, like Louie and I are buddies. And when when she's sponsoring this episode, oh amazing, Liquid Amber Tattoo and Arts Collective is sponsoring this episode. Shout so. out to Louie. <laughs> hey Louie, thanks for sponsoring this. That's great. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it was it was an inc- it was an incredible experience, and I. I was fully cognizant the whole time of what playing a black nerdy guy in a sci-fi show would mean to a bunch of young black people who weren't the the alpha kind of jockey guys watching. And then I, one of the great experiences of my life, I got to do a couple conventions because yeah. of continuing. So Amy and I, my, my wife Amy and I, got to go to Dragon Con where, you know, we had these profound experiences where mothers would come up with their their kids and you know crying saying my kid had never seen 
a smart black guy on on a TV show, on a sci-fi show before, and like you're his guy because he's he's got glasses, he's a nerdy guy, and he saw Lucas, and he's like, the guy's like me. Wow. I, I met a woman who worked at NASA, this black woman who worked at NASA, who was like, thanks for repping black tech people, and she's like, it's so nice to meet you, and I was sitting here going, you're a, literally a rocket scientist. <laughs> <laughs> you're I'm like, you're thanking me. And I still have a picture with her, and it's it's just it's incredible. Like genre fans are incredible. Yeah. They're they're, they're so gracious and appreciative and often they're like a little shy and yeah. socially awkward but, but they're so passionate too yeah. it's the, and it's that passion that like mm -hmm. I just I, I'm addicted to it like I mm -hmm. love fans I'm a yeah. fan of, of fans oh, you know and I yeah. say that as somebody who is who is a fan mm -hmm. you know I mean literally that's fueling the work mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. the work that I do I love that you mentioned Amy your lovely life, wife Amy mm -hmm. uh, who has a who is an incredible storyteller yeah. uh, and playwright, you mm -hmm. know, in, in and of herself. And I know, can you just tell us a little bit about the, what you two are working on sure, together? Because yeah. I know that you recently had a, a, a play in the um, New Works uh, series mm -hmm. at, the at the Arts, Arts Club. Club. Yeah. yeah. So my wife, Amy Lee Lavoie, is an incredible uh, playwright. And we actually met in Montreal. She was in the playwriting program at the National Theatre School of Canada. Uh, they only accept, I think, three or four writers a year. <sighs> And the way we actually met is she had seen me in a, a play that was in Montreal, and she was writing a play for her final project for National Theatre School, and the protagonist was a black man. And she said after seeing me on stage, she started picturing me in the role, so was writing it, picturing me playing it. And then when the play was finished, she asked the National Theatre School if they can get me for the role. And inexplicably, I don't know how they had money for this, but the National Theatre School of Canada flew me from Vancouver to Montreal to read in her play, and that's the first time we met. And I, I was so taken by her. I thought she was so beautiful and I thought she was so brilliant that at the reading, I couldn't make eye contact with her. So she thought, she told her parents like, yeah, he's a great actor, but he's like a snub. <laughs> you know? But really I was so nervous around her that, uh, you know. Uh, and and amazingly, like one of the great joys of my life is now we get to to write together. Yeah. So we're our our current project or one of our, our current projects, we're writing a play called Redbone Coonhound yeah. that deals with the the race relations basically in North America and the history of them that was inspired by us running into this guy uh, in our neighborhood in the West End who had this dog that was like paying a lot of attention to me and when I asked what kind of dog it was the guy told me it was a, a red bone coonhound and I'd never heard that name before and for anyone who doesn't know you know, redbone is a term in the black community that's that refers to mixed race people. They call them redbone, and coon, of course, is a very offensive slur where you, uh, a black person who's considered uh, a sellout, who's just you know performing in a derogatory way for the amusement of white people, is known as a coon. So the combination of those two words, redbone coonhound, <sighs> and this dog paying attention to me, I was like, what? And my wife, she just loves dogs, so she was like, oh yeah, it's a breed. And this, this inspired us to write an entire play about uh, racial microaggressions and how they come to be. Oh, wow. Oh, I'm totally stressed out and intrigued. <laughs> yeah, I, it's, I mean, on, what I love about theater is, I mean, I get to learn you know mm -hmm. so much and it's it's but it's also it's really cathartic in a lot of ways too because you get to see something stressful mm -hmm. you know be explored from so many different you know dimensions on the on the stage mm -hmm. and then you can go out into the lobby and and talk about it what was yeah. so at the reading that you had what was what was some of the discussion that happened after that reading it was it was really cool like it, i mean keeping in mind that it's an early draft so it's not yeah. finished and there's more to come 
But people were very kind in that they said that they were intrigued by the honesty that they saw in the play. And Amy and I, we set out to have a conversation in our play about race that was like the ones that we have over coffee in the morning. Yeah. Like, it's, it's interesting. As an interracial couple, we're starting to see more now on TV interracial couples or mixed race couples on television. But... I feel like oftentimes they don't talk about race in an in an honest way that we do. Yeah. Like Amy and I are pretty brutal. Like you acknowledge the fact that it's it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. And it could be it could cause other people to to look extra. I'm just thinking about my own parents, you know. Sure. And, and um, although they were they were they never really spoke about it at all. Mm. Like when I was growing up, I didn't actually realize that they were different from mm. colors until I went out into the world, and then wow. people talked to me about that, you know. Mm-hmm. But that was that was the approach that they took was that oh we're going to do this like colorblind mm-hmm. um, household, you know. So so and and I mean and that was the way that they chose and it worked for them. And like mm-hmm. Paul and I are doing something different, and mm-hmm. you know you can't. Uh, there's no one. There's no one. There way is to, no one yeah. way. Yeah. But yeah. Think, but if I remember back in the day. Though, like on even watching like soap operas and stuff, like they like they, they would only be like, okay, the the black guy can only be with the black girl, yeah. you know, and yeah, um, yeah if, like that's it, like they cannot mm-hmm. go beyond that, mm-hmm. you know, and then they get islanded, and then they sure. just show up once every two weeks, and I, I remember, even, I mean, I've worked on shows where. I, back when I used to do like background work, where sometimes you're, they would pair you as a, you're supposed to be a couple, and they would pair you with like the only other black girl on set, which is is fine. I've dated yeah. black women. I don't, I don't. But it's interesting that oftentimes we still live in this reality where people don't acknowledge that interracial dating is a thing. Yeah, it's, it's bizarre. Canada, mm-hmm. different from the states. Yeah. Uh, can Can we talk about the um, the I'm just thinking, I mean, you've done a lot of media recently talking about mm-hmm. the Trudeau uh, blackface yeah. and, and brownface photos and video because, yeah. you know, he was in every kind of, yeah. of medium. He po- he mugged for every kind of camera. Um, but, you know, uh, how do you think that Canadians are doing with regards to conversations around race? And like what kind of revelations mm-hmm. have you had about that, if any, in, well, in the wake of this whole Trudeau um, debacle? Sadly to me, they're not really revelations. They're just reconfirmations of kind of what I knew after over a decade of talking about these issues online. But to me, the most telling thing, if you want to know, get the pulse of a a country, sadly, go to the comment section of any article about race. Oh, see, that's the opposite advice I give to anybody. To protect your mental health, just stay, never, ever, 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 ever read the comments. And you're right. That that is great why. (laughs) But people who who think that racism doesn't exist, just... Anytime CBC posts an article about race or indigenous people's issues, in in fact, I think CBC has actually now, as a policy, shut down the comment section to any article about indigenous issues because it's spammed with so much hate speak that it's astounding. But the amount of, I mean, even, so when I did this appearance this week on, on CBC Radio, on Twitter, some guy was commenting and saying, you know, these networks with their SJW agenda keep putting on, and this was a quote, and the, the tweet is still up there, dark-skinned foreigners to talk about race. And I, and the guy tweeted at me, he tweeted at the host of the segment I was on, and I tweeted back and I was like, so I was born in Canada. It's the only place I've ever lived, born and raised. I have a Canadian citizenship. I am dark-skinned. I'll give you that much. But 
where do you get this notion that I'm I'm not a Canadian? That I'm like he was implying basically that CBC was taking non-Canadians and having them talk about race. And this is common. This is I mean, I had a guy a month ago when I was walking my dog in my neighborhood tell me to go back to my country. And you're just like Yeah. How do you not know that there are people of color that are born in Canada? What is it though? Like what what is it about like it are they doing it better in the States? Because at least in the States, as racist as it is, people mm-hmm. acknowledge that the country is racist, mm-hmm. that racism exists. Yeah. You know, like in sure. Canada, I find there's always, you know, from from the white people in my life, and mm-hmm. some of my best friends are white people. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I have a white mother. Yeah. But, like, it's, it's this lack of willingness yeah. to admit mm-hmm. that that is something that exists here. And I'm... Like I find it exhausting, and I'm actually mm-hmm. at a point where I don't know if I want to do diversity and inclusion panels anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, like because often the people who are coming to those panels and are sitting on the panels, we're all people of color. Yeah, I don't need I to. I don't want it. Like they don't need to hear me tell them that it exists. You know, yeah. what yeah. is it? I think part of Canada's mythology is this idea, at least when it comes to to black and white issues. We know that, you know, people fled the southern states to Canada via the Underground Railroad. This was a thing that happened. And because of this, there's this pat on the back thing where Canadians think, like, Canada was, well, there was never racism in Canada. You know, that's yeah. people. This is Canada's where people came to get away from racism, and it's it's absurd because if you know the history of Canada, you know that like there was a legacy of slavery in Canada. John A. Macdonald owned slaves. You know, I think uh, James McGill, I think is his name, the guy who founded McGill University, he owned slaves. This was a common practice. I mean, yeah. I, I found out just through this Trudeau thing, the guy who wrote our national anthem, Calixa Lavalle, was a, apparently a famous blackface performer. This is a guy who would tour the states and tour Canada in blackface, and he wrote uh, and he wrote our national anthem, right? So I think it's. But this... we've all seen that Heritage Minute about the Underground sure. Railroad, right? Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the calm, the calm white woman, you know, mm-hmm. having to calm down the his, the hysterical black woman waiting for the, mm-hmm. you know, the, what was it, a church pew? And, yeah. Like ridiculous, it's ridiculous right? Right. <laughs> but there is this smugness in Canada where it's like we are the progressive. I mean. The Trudeau thing to me is like the perfect metaphor for for Canada. Yeah, like Trudeau and I and look, I, I have very nuanced views on the whole Trudeau thing. I, I would never vote for Sheer. I would never vote for Conservatives because I'm much more afraid of a, a a political party with a legacy of discriminatory practices than I mm-hmm. am with a guy who 20 years ago did some really dumb shit that was racist and has apologized and taken ownership for it. But that being said, Trudeau was held up as this progressive champion. Oh yeah, there are a lot of progressives who were very excited to Absolutely. vote for him. I'm I was one of them. Uh, sure. I very rarely voted liberal. I was right. all NDP all the way, but like mm-hmm. I I voted to keep mm-hmm. because I wanted to keep the conservatives sure. out of office. And I'll say, you know, I didn't vote for him in the last election, but I happily would have. Yeah. I just know my riding Hetty Fry is one of my oh, God. since 1993. <laughs> yeah, of so course. I was like there's no but if I was in a swing riding, I would have voted for him absolutely Yeah, and I Harper, was. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I get it. But, you know, that is the perfect example of Canadian uh, racism, where you have these liberal presenting people who, of course, have these skeletons in their closet that the rest of the country is unwilling to acknowledge. And only white people were shocked to hear about him in blackface. And only white people tried to minimize it and its seriousness. Like, this is the hilarious thing. Trudeau came out and said, 
yeah, I uh, I apologize, I was really messed up. And there was still many people trying to downplay it, saying it's not a, a big deal, when the guy who did it even acknowledged it was a big deal and apologized. Yeah. That's Canada. <sighs> yeah, yeah, it is. Um, we're going to take a break. Sure. We're going to make sure that Liquid Amber Tattoo and Arts Collectives uh, gets their moment that they so rightly deserve. When we come back, I want to talk about what the fuck moments. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about success. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about, well, we're going to do a little bit more time travel. Does that great. sound good? Sounds great. Okay. Let's take that break. Some people claim that Vancouver is a no-fun city, but anyone who says this has clearly not attended Liquid Amber Tattoo and Art Collective's monthly art socials, because these events are crazy fun and bring artists and art lovers together in one gorgeous space. Liquid Amber Tattoo is located in a stunning three-story brick building in historic Gastown. Since 2001, Liquid Amber's artists have been providing custom and cosmetic tattoos to satisfied Vancouverites and out-of-towners. The studio is health board approved, it's spotless, and the artists are consummate professionals. And there is always stellar artwork by local artists on the walls. Which brings us to Liquid Amber Tattoo and Art Collective's signature event, The Art Social. On the last Friday of every month, Liquid Amber closes up early and the studio becomes an after-hours hive of creative energy. A vibrant, pulsating event space where artists show and sell their creations to art lovers and everyone is sipping wine and beer and having one hell of a good time. And right now, Liquid Amber Tattoo is on the lookout for art that's been created by artists who work in the film industry or that's been inspired by the film industry in some way. Is that you? Learn how you can submit your work to the 2020 Showcase and be part of future art socials on the Liquid Amber website. Liquid Amber Tattoo and Art Collective is located at 62 Powell Street in Vancouver. For more information about the studio and the monthly art socials, and to submit to the 2020 Film Art Showcase, visit liquidambertattoo.com. That's liquidambertattoo.com. Okay, so I want to talk about, I love talking about success and ideas mm -hmm. of success. Because I know, as somebody who is approaching uh, 40 as fuck, um, that ideas around success can change as you, as you grow. So mm -hmm. what for you, like, did you want at the beginning of your career? Mm -hmm. And what is success to you now? So at the beginning of my career, like most actors, the dream was first to book a job. Yeah. Right? Then it was like, okay, I got a job. Then it's like, can I, you know, be a, a lead? And although, although I got to be honest, my first professional gig was a lead in a show at Black Theater Workshop when I was nineteen, and I became an equity member at nineteen. So that, on stage at least, I had that experience earlier, which was great. Gave me a lot of confidence for film and TV because I was doing leads in theater. Right? Yeah. So then success was like, okay, can I? Uh, do work and that's critically acclaimed and sustain myself and make make a living and then that milestone was reached right I got some nominations and I, and I made some money then eventually in around 2006 when I was doing quite well in theater in Montreal I said to myself I'm looking at my tax returns I'm not making enough money to sustain this as a living so then the goal became can I make enough money to set myself up for the future as an actor which meant you know booking a series regular or a large recur recurring on a series and then knock on wood I was very blessed where I had I had this incredible run from 2009 until 
I don't know, I mean, whenever Continuum was canceled, 2009 to 2014, I guess, where I was a series regular for seven years straight. I went right from Blue Mountain State to Continuum and was able to, you know, invest, was able to buy property. So that, that milestone was reached and that was an amazing time in my life. Yeah. But now I think success is, if I'm to be totally honest, one, from a business standpoint, setting myself up for, for financial independence. So by age 50, I can pursue purely projects that I, I want to do. And I, I don't want to have to be chasing projects that are just for money, yeah. of which there are many in film and TV. Um, and to be in a position where I get to create and contribute as either a writer, or producer, or director on projects that I want to see made, rather than just like trying to get jobs in, in projects other people are making. Mm. Um, what about what the fuck moments? Do you, do you have these moments where you, you're you just overwhelmed with that sense of, what the fuck, this is actually my life? Like, do you have those? And if so, what, the, what are they? Yeah, like in a positive way or in a, in a negative way? Well, I mostly made it in a, in a positive way. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I mean, I can absolutely mm-hmm. see how it could be negative mm-hmm. as well. I mean, I inexplicably, or no, I don't want to say inexplicably. I've been very grateful to have voiced the Black Panther for various Marvel projects since 2012. And it will never not be surreal getting a message from my agent that Marvel is book has booked me and that Marvel is, is calling me back in to do more work. It's by far the most surreal credit on my resume that I'm so proud of. And, and now it, it's gotten to the point where the, the past couple of years, I, I don't audition. They just, they just call and say, would you like to do it again? And it's, it's surreal. That, that character meant, I mean, you know, I wrote an article about yeah, it. Yeah, well, we'll put it, well, we're going to put uh, links to all of Omari's articles in the footnotes for this episode. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you, you, you're you very, I mean, you said in the article that you're part of a very small fraternity of people sure. who have voiced, you know, a very important character. Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, and and not only that, as, as time goes on and like very grateful as they continue to book me for it, I'm like, it's a pretty long run voicing the character for, for Marvel. And I just, uh, what it means to me uh, as an actor, and just thinking back to when I was a young kid, it, it, words can't describe it. Like, that's definitely a what-the-fuck moment. Uh, it's pretty crazy. And I think anytime, like, getting to go to conventions, like, I, I went to conventions as a fan with my dad when I was a kid. Yeah. The idea, and, and I'm not even going to front, it's weird with conventions. I'm not a famous actor, right? So I was, I remember I was sitting next to the wonderful Barry Boswick and the wonderful Nick Lee. I was in between them at, at Dragon Con, and they had lines exponentially bigger than mine. Yeah. Right? And this is what people don't talk about at conventions. That it, But, like, there were people who, like, came to see me. Yeah. It might have just been, like, a dozen over, or, you know, but yeah. there were people who, like, came to a convention because of something I had done they loved and that is surreal to me mm. you know as an actor you just think like you're, you're working just trying to pay your, your rent and the notion that there are that are fans of your work was not something I ever dreamt of or envisioned you know yeah so I mentioned that we were going to do a bit more time travel sure so I want to go back in time to the beginning of your career mm-hmm. let's go let's go to uh, to when you're 19 and, okay. and you're working with a black theater workshop. Mm-hmm. Um, what advice would you give to yourself at that age? Hmm. Or would you give any advice at all? I'm really fortunate in that I had amazing mentors. Uh, Kate Bly was the artistic director of Black Theater Workshop, and she also directed my first play. She was a classically trained uh, director who went to, I think she went to Lambda in the UK. 
And she instilled in me in the at the age of 19 the discipline, work ethic, and respect for professional theater that stayed with me for my entire career. Mm. She was big on Uta Hagen, on verbing, on text analysis, and this was my first example. And there's also, also a wonderful actor named Tyrone Benzikin, who, interestingly enough, also ended up being elected as a member of parliament. He ran for the NDP and, and won uh, during the, the orange uh, crush that happened during the last election in Montreal. He was... Oh, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that <laughs> that'd, would, be, that'd be nice, right? <laughs> that would be great. A, re- a repeat would be great, yeah. yeah. So uh, Tyrone Benskin was a, a, an actor in that first play, My Children of Africa, I worked in, and he, he was and is a wildly successful actor. And just... Seeing his work ethic and his skill level at a young age, I was like, oh, wow, like the bar, the bar is here. This is what I need to do. And at the time, what was surreal is we did this play, you know, there was three actors, myself, uh, Sarah Bazanson, the wonderful actor as well, Tyron Benskin. We would tour schools during the day and then do shows in the theater at night. Yeah. And we were not making crazy money. Like it's theater money. At the time, I remember in theater, I think it was like, I think it was like $400 a week. Yeah. But but for me, at 19, living with my parents, I was balling. Yeah, right? of course. Right? <laughs> but Tyrone was a series regular on a, on a Canadian um, soap opera called Riverdale at the time. He had this big TV resume, and he was making way more. And I was like, wow, this guy really loves the craft of acting and theater. And this, just seeing how professional he was and how hard he worked, it was so inspirational for me. It, it just stayed with me to this day. Yeah. Have you noticed... Uh, changes at all in the in the kinds of roles that you're reading for. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm I mean I'm reminded of uh, that that roundtable that we did you know with African Canadian uh, performers a mm-hmm. few years ago and it was you know it was right kind of right after Oscar So White yep. you know and I know a lot of people have looked at the last few years that they're they've talked about there being some kind of paradigm shifts and mm-hmm. massive change are you seeing that change in the kind of roles that are coming to you that you're reading for I mean since I since I started for sure yeah when, when I I mean literally the first credit on my resume is slave number two. Oh my God. and I think one of the next ones was thug number one um, which is an upgrade, at least. I made it to the first thug. I was the second slave, but I got to be thug number one, which is wonderful. That is something to celebrate. Yeah, that's progress. <laughs> oh, man. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, but to me, there's so many factors that play into it. Like, when I was younger and fit, I booked a football player on Blue Mountain State. When I was a bit less in shape and older and wore glasses, I booked a nerdy guy on a sci-fi series. So my, my career has been really, really blessed in that I've, I've stayed working, you know, depending on how I, my look changed. But... I do think now what you'll see on breakdowns is they will send out casting where they'll, they'll say, please submit all ethnicities. Yeah. They want you to send anybody in, and, and that's big. Before, it was just like assumed that everybody was, was white. But that being said, the majority of roles are still white people. Yeah. You know, and oftentimes you get to read for a, a somewhat tokenistic supporting role, but all the series regulars and all the leads tend to be white still. So while there is progress, it's it's not, you know, there's still much work to be done. Yeah. yeah. I personally feel like a lot of the change needs to happen in writers' rooms. Yeah. Uh, in, in the executives there. Like, mm-hmm. that's where I feel like, because if you have that there, and they're mm-hmm. the ones who are thinking of the stories and mm-hmm. writing them all down, mm-hmm. you know, then you'll... 
then we'll, we'll see it reflected more on screen than like leaving the decisions to people who don't really yeah. understand. Well, and this, I should bring up, this might sound like a, a gross flex, but I guess we're talking honestly. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I just took part in an amazing program called Break the Room, which was uh, Paul Feige's company, uh, Powder Keg, has this program where they wanted to get more diverse writers in comedy rooms. Yeah. So they had this open submission thing where they, they, they would take comedians, playwrights, whoever. If you were a writer and you were diverse, you could submit. And I was very fortunate to have been chosen to be one of six writers to take part in this Break the Room thing. I think I saw a photo with that. Kashif, mm-hmm. Was that with the Kashif pa- Pasta yes. was in there? Kashif, yeah. Kashif was in there. Yeah. Uh, uh, Nessa, Nessa, Aref. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Lawrence Lamb. Like, there's some, some wonderful oh, Vancouver so creatives. Yeah. So we, I can't really talk about what we did, but we, we broke a, a six-episode uh, thing, and we broke this entire series. And it just gave me invaluable experience about what it'd be like to be in a writer's room. And that's where my my sights are set for ideally the next 10 years of my career. Yes. My wife and I, as a writing team, getting into writer's rooms and, and just having a, an impact creatively behind the scenes. Oh, no one can. You, you're the only one who can see the look on my face. I'm so excited. <laughs> because also, maybe this is like that moment, you know, that you had when you're like, I want to do, you know, this kind of sure. work. And like, so we're putting it out there. Mm-hmm. It's Oprah's secret right here, right now. And, and I'll say, I, I've been incredibly blessed like people like you who just randomly reach out to me and be like I would like you to write for my public and I've had friends who I've worked with as an actor on TV shows reach out to me with opportunities on TV show writing rooms yeah I, I can't name who or the projects but people I've worked you're with you're doing on a shows. lot of that you're just like you know dropping all these little <laughs> little uh, seeds and you're not well, that's, uh, and little that's, crumbs of information but it's not the, random though like right. for me reaching out it wasn't random it right. was have, being familiar with your words mm-hmm. and how you present your Yourself. And, and for me, realizing like I wanted to, I mean, frankly, I, I, I want the people writing about issues, especially in this city, to represent more voices, you know, sure. like, and mm-hmm. because for the most part, they're not. And that was so glaringly obvious right. in the coverage of the, of the Justin Trudeau, you know, brown face, black mm-hmm. face uh, photos and mm-hmm. video, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, where you saw just the glaring whiteness yeah. of the, the media landscape here. Yep. So my whole thing is like, I want to build my own media outlet and mm-hmm. empire hopefully yep. one day yeah. and uh yeah and, and elevate and amplify voices that uh that i love and i love your voice omari well thank you i appreciate uh, that this has been amazing <laughs> um uh where can our fans find you on the social media I am on Facebook. Just search for Omari Newton. Uh, there's there's actually four Omari Newtons, but you can just find a picture of me and my wife on our wedding day. We're there. Uh, <laughs> I'm on Instagram. It's at Omari Akil Newton. And Twitter, same thing, at Omari Akil Newton. Are you friends with the other Omari Newtons? Randomly, yeah. They added yeah. me. I think two of them are Blue Mountain State fans. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> so they, they added me. So I'm, yeah, I'm like, I mean, I don't, I've never met them in person, but yeah. I think one guy's in Texas and one guy's in Connecticut. I think you guys should switch player. lives every once in a while and just like, you know, <laughs> s- see what's going on for all the other Omaris. <laughs> yeah. All right. To you, our listeners, I, I give you great thanks. Please like and subscribe. Leave us a review. Five stars or less. You can find us at www.yvrscreenscene. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at YVR Screen Scene. The YVR Screen Scene podcast is hosted and executive produced by me, 
Sabrina Firminger. And it's produced and edited by Simon Firminger. We give special thanks to Tyson Braddock and Paul Firminger. We're family business for technical support. And to Dane Develay for the original music. YVR Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic film and television scene. And cut!